you know, they, they tell you that there's a lesson learned when you build an MVP. They tell you to kind of start with a, a you know, like a roller skate, skateboard, then build it to a bicycle, then a motorcycle, then a car, then a Ferrari over time. I, even though I read the book, Lean Startup, I, you know, it's, it's one of those lessons I had to learn kind of the hard way. It wasn't until we're like, hey, look, we're probably not going to get this out to market before we run out of money that we had to decide if we were going to have to, you know, to basically try something else. We decided to start something simple, which is just an automated email or text that goes out to people if a report uh, gets filed for them that just gives them some basic information. That's it. That's how we started. My name is Rahul Sadu. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Spider Tech. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Raul's to do created a way for police departments to manage and improve public perception. All this and more on Code Story. Raul Sadu was one of those kids who was always fiddling with computers. He even had a small tech startup in high school to help him pay his way through college. Out of high school, he was an EMT and studied emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Post that, he became a paramedic crew chief overseeing an assigned rescue crew and shift. And in 2013, he became a police officer full-time. He's a regular at the gym, which obviously shows that fitness is important to him along with hanging out with his family and friends. He's a golfer and is recently trying to get better at it. And he likes to travel through food, as he says it, planning his trips around the best places to eat. In 2015, within the Techstars program in New York, Raul and his co-founders were running out of cash, unable to deliver on what they were intending. After some helpful words from a friendly former chief, he and his team decided to keep it simple an attempt to help police departments solve the customer service problem. This is the creation story of Spider Tech. The main focus of Spider Tech is to help law enforcement agencies improve the services that they provide and the customer service they provide more specifically, which ultimately improves public perception of that agency. And public perception is essentially the most important success metric for any chief executive at a police department or a sheriff's department in the United States. And the way we kind of approach this is is similarly to how the private sector approached it. When you buy something from a company like Amazon or any other website, you're going to get these automated customer communications constantly throughout the process of, of, of you know fulfilling your order, for example. You'll get that email immediately when you when you click submit and your, your order goes through. You'll get that order confirmation. You'll get you'll be told when to expect your item. You'll get you know emails and text messages across the bend saying, hey, your item is shipped, your item is delivered. Uh, you can click here to track the status of your order. And then at the end, they're gonna they put you through a feedback loop because they want to understand how you like the item and and how you know if the services they provided were adequate and and where they can make improvements. All this is done through an automated system that they either build in house or they utilize externally. And we built that same type of automated, essentially customer service platform for public safety agencies specifically. In Carrollton, if you were right next door, if you're driving through Carrollton, you call 911. When you hang up the phone, you're going to get a text message from Carrollton PD that's saying, hey, 
here's everything that uh, you need to know about an officer's going to be showing up and and giving you updates about that. And when the officer leaves, you'll get a, a you know an email and or text message saying, "Here's everything you need to know about your report. Uh, your your detective has been assigned. You know your uh, an arrest has been made. I mean, they're going to hold your hand through that entire process. And while they're doing that, they're also going to send you surveys to get a better sense of of how you felt about the officer you interacted with, how you're feeling about the services, what other information you can give them so they can improve their services uh, and, and optimize it on their end. You're giving them the ability to utilize that data to m serve the community better. And that's that's the name of the game. Tell me about that first MVP, that first pilot that you built. Um, how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life? You know, they they tell you that there's a lesson learned when you build an MVP. They tell you to kind of start with a, a you know like a roller skate skateboard, then build it to a bicycle, then a motorcycle, then a car, then a Ferrari over time. Even though I read the book Lean Startup, I you know it's it's one of those lessons I had to learn kind of the hard way. You know, we started in 2015. We were in the Horizontal Techstars program in New York. The product that we were looking to build at the time is not the product that we have today. You know, I raised a pre-seed round of about a million dollars and I had to burn through some of that capital to, to, to learn some of these lessons. It wasn't until we're like, hey, look, we're probably not going to get this out to market before we run out of money that we had to decide if we were going to have to, you know, to basically try something else. So I remember I flew out to Burlington, Vermont, the former chief there, Michael Sherling, great guy. He had us out in his boat out on the lake and, and trying to brainstorm what we can do from there. And one of the things he left us with is just keep it simple and help, you know, police departments solve the customer service problem specifically. Public perceptions is very important to us. We want to make sure that we're providing the best service we possibly can. Help us compete on the customer service side with these companies like Amazon, et cetera, that are driving up expectations, consumer expectations on, you know, what, what to expect when they interact with services. That kind of clicked for us and we decided to start something simple, which is just an automated email or text that goes out to people if a report uh, gets filed for them that just gives them some basic information. That's it, that's how we started. I remember we met a police chief, uh, his name's John Peters in Grover Beach, California, Central California. And, you know, he was he was a nice guy. He said, hey, if you guys have something you want to try, you know, I'm happy to, to, to talk to you guys about it. We drove up there. We we asked him about it. We said, hey, look, here's what we got. He, he gave us a thumbs up, said, go ahead, give it a shot. Small department, you know, about 20 cops or a little less. And we spun it up there. No, you know, no cost to, to, to make sure it worked and it worked. And then from there, we started building a customer base. But they, you know, having a customer that was willing to take a bet on us and and saw the value, and it was kind of you know not you know it wasn't like a, a high expectations type deal. It was like let's see what you guys can do, uh, and a friendship and a partnership there was really important. And I would say that grew because the second agency that we started working with was much larger than them. That was Tucson, Arizona. Uh, one of the major cities in Arizona, and they gave us a shot too. Again, that started as unpaid, that eventually turned into a paid contract, but it started as unpaid. And in Tucson, they really worked with us. We had uh, members of the staff that was were, were driving the, our product decisions in, in a variety of ways. We were testing the product at scale. And that from there, that's where this product really took took off and is now used by over 60 agencies in, in, uh, in the United States and uh, Canada. I want to dig into that MVP a little more with decisions and trade-offs, but before, I think it's a really important thing to point out that, you know, you did that twice for, for free. How did you, how did you go through that process? Was it hard to deal with? Was it, was it like, oh man, we're, we're putting our, 
our goods out there for nothing. Tell me a little bit about that process. Especially, you know, with enterprise deals and especially with government, you know, like any industry that is very, very slow to change and is essentially risk averse, doesn't really like working with startups, you have to find ways to incentivize them to give you a shot. And if you, you know, if, if they feel like the risk is not necessarily financial, there might be some manpower risk on their end, you know, you can basically bring the risk down to a level that is acceptable for them. For us, it wasn't about making immediate cash, it was about testing this out in the first place and seeing if there was true value. When you're in that iterative stage, sometimes getting 10, 15, $20,000, if you have venture capital funding, by the way, uh, 10, 15, $20,000 isn't as important as getting a product to market now, instead of having to wait six to nine months to get something across the finish line to get a little bit of cash. And so we just made the choice to, to basically uh, try this for free. And if that worked, immediately use that success to accelerate real sales. I will say that it wasn't about six months until after we deployed the product the first time uh, for free to our original customers that our first paying customer came around. And then we were it was paying all the way across. We never had to give the product away for free ever again. But that was a necessary sacrifice for us in an industry like that. Well, let, let me double back on the MVP a little bit. So, you know, you decided to keep it simple, right? You decided to, to go with kind of a minimal product uh, out of the gate. Um, which comes with certain decisions and trade-offs around what features you're not going to commit to in the beginning or any sort of technical debt you have to accept. So tell me about some of those decisions you had to make about what you were going to leave off the table for that first version. Yeah, like I said, we, we learned those lessons the hard way the first go around. Um, and that I, w- I will isolate to me because other members of my team were, were, were thinking about this correctly, but I had this, you know, this vision in my head that I wanted to completely complete before we did anything, and that when we when we actually deployed the product for the first time with simple features, then it became a, f- a function of understanding step by step how we're going to scale up. What's it going to take us to deploy five customers, and then what's it going to take us to sub- deploy and support fifteen, and then fifty, and then a hundred, and then five hundred, and and step by step, we scaled it up that way. Because there's trade-offs. If, if you don't build with a plan to scale in mind, you can really bog yourself down in technical debt and you won't be able to get to that next stage as fast as you need to be able to get to that next stage. But the other side of it, if you build with too much of this thought in mind, uh, where, where you're, you're trying to build every step for scale too much in the beginning, depending on the industry and depending on how long it's going to take to get paying customers, you might struggle. And I've seen this, like, you know, our, our CTO at the time, he's still with the company's our technical co-founder, you know, he's, he's brilliant. And he was able to kind of think about things step-by-step step the way we needed to. There are other, you know, technical co-founders that you, you, you might find out there that might come from larger companies and aren't really used to making MVPs this way or operating a business at this early stage that feel very uncomfortable with the trade-off of accumulating a little bit of tech debt in the beginning um, and thinking about scale, but not operating on that scale yet. They're, they're just not comfortable with it and they, they don't they don't quite grasp the business reasons for it. But you do have to find a balance and that balance is going to be different company to company based on how quickly you'll be able to get revenue, how quickly you have to scale and maintain that scale. So you've got, you know, your two companies that were unpaid, you, you had some successes there and then you started rolling in and after that next six months, rolling in paid customers. Um, how did you progress the product from there and mature it? And and I think I'm most interested in how you built your roadmap and figured out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. We kind of had a sense right off the bat with, okay, if 
if victims of crime are going to appreciate getting this kind of acknowledgement or receipt from the police when they file a police report, then that's one step in the process of what other things will community members appreciate when it comes to this kind of individualized transparency with the police department uh, and improving the services uh, along that. So it wasn't just crime victims, and it was, what about 911 callers? I mean, that the police are constantly trying to serve people who are calling 911. And first we thought about who are the primary customers of our customers. Uh, well, the primary customers are people who are calling the police for assistance. Those are the people that they primarily have to go out and assist right off the bat. It's not the only customers, but they're definitely customers. Then you have secondary customers. I mean, you have you have folks that um, are counting on the police to keep them safe, but maybe they're not interacting with them. Um, you also have folks that that you know are are being cited by the police or, or arrested by the police, and technically they're all customers as well, but they're served a little bit differently. So our thoughts were: let's start with the primary customers. Let's get a sense of what their customers will appreciate and find the Venn diagram overlap between what they will appreciate and what actually saves these departments money and time and you know the critical elements that they're trying to kind of work on on the back end with with becoming more efficient. And so when we found that overlap, we looked at things like, okay, communicating with 911 callers in a way that makes it so that they don't feel the need to call back constantly and tie up 911 lines, or uh, in a way that reduces you know, response times because we're, reduce, we're making patrol more efficient, in a way that's going to reduce the amount of complaints. Uh, and then we started thinking about the, 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 the accountability aspect. You know, in what ways can we basically help get feedback from our customers' customers and give it to our customers, the police departments themselves, that will again improve their efficiency uh, and, and focus on improving their their main success metrics, which would be public perception and ultimately things like budget, etc. So we started thinking about, okay, well, what can we do to decrease the likelihood, for example, uh, or decrease liabilities for them, which cost them money? Uh, what can we do to improve thing, you know, their efficiencies and, and what information can they get from their customers and how can we help them get that? And that is basically how we started formulating the product piece by piece. Let's first start with another type of message that goes out to now one callers. Let's then start with uh, sending out surveys. And even like, I'll give an example on the survey side. When we started testing that out. We were using a third party survey, a survey provider with a SOGO survey. Um, and until that couldn't scale and we felt like, okay, you know what? It's better that we build our own survey platform. And then we ultimately built our own survey platform, but it was piece by piece using some third party, you know, open source software in the beginning, not really as much anymore, uh, using third party providers in the beginning, not as much anymore. And just kind of chasing down where we found those value points overlapped between our customers and our customer customers. Well, let's switch to team then. So you've got a you got a working you know product you're growing. How did you go about building your team, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I, I mentioned Ken and I. He was our technical co-founder. This is kind of funny. The story. When I left uh, full-time policing, I immediately went to a place called General Assembly. Uh, many of you might have heard of it, and I started a three-month coding boot camp where I wanted to learn how to code. And that was, you know, I, I studied user design there, uh, coding. And in that three month period of time, our head instructor was Ken and I, <laughs> he's the one who taught us all how to code everybody in the class. And, uh, he, and, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I was talking about this kind of project I was working on. The company wasn't formula, uh, formalized yet. And he was like really interested. He said, okay, he, he took me out to lunch one day. He's like, Hey, this sounds like something I could maybe jump in with you on. And I was, I was super fortunate that, that he felt that way. You know, we, we kind of took off from there, but that class at General Assembly 
you know, this is what I talk to people on making the most out of your networking opportunities. That class was basically spun up this entire company because that class also included our first venture capital investor, not including tech stars. Uh, my, my friend Taylor Adams with No Name Ventures, he was also in that boot camp learning how to code six years ago with me. And he decided to take a different path. He ended up getting into venture capital and he's the one who wrote us our first check <laughs> shortly after. And our tech lead, one of our, our, our one of the engineers who's been with us since the beginning, uh, Jefferson Choi, he was also in that class. And Techstars, I mentioned, was our first, you know, a real first, you know, like our, our investor, the, the tech accelerator. I met them because I was sitting in class at General Assembly and someone sent me a message and said, hey, the managing director, Alex Iskold of Techstars New York is outside. Go, go pitch him on the way out. And I went and pitched him on the way out. He sat down with me for about 25 minutes and we ultimately got into, into Techstars from there. So all of these things kind of happened out of that. And I would be remiss to not mention a few other people. So Elon Keisman, one of our other co-founders, uh, he and I were in, the, we were in the Sheriff's Academy together. And uh, he was at a different police department, but I remember we were kind of getting our asses kicked in the sheriff's academy, just covered in dirt and blood and, and sitting there going, this sucks. And I remember turning to him and asking him, hey, man, if one day I want to start a big company, would you uh, would you join me? And he's like, yeah, hell yeah, anything to get out of this. <laughs> and that's what he ended up doing. There were other members, like very core members of our team. I, I can't, you know, I can't begin to to mention everybody, but like I remember Mandy Duffy. We got really lucky with Mandy. She's our chief revenue officer. About a year after we started, she found us in an article about you know top fifty startups in LA, and uh, she was formerly the uh, regional director of sales operations or the director of sales operations at Axon, also known as Taser, one of the larger companies in law enforcement. She wanted to, to move out potentially down to Southern California. She saw the company. She reached out and said, "Hey, let's have a conversation." And she joined us uh, shortly after. And she's she's been like you know just at rock uh, ever since. Other folks like you know our, our director of product, Marissa Rosenblatt, and everybody who's joined along the way. I mean, they all just believe in the mission of of helping build and improve these police community relationships, and and that's what keeps them going. Let's, let's flip to scalability a little bit. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? I don't like to use the word fighting it because I feel like we're, we've done a, uh, like I, there were times where I felt like we were fighting it, uh, but we've done a, uh, our team's done such a good job kind of taking a bite out of tech debt at as many opportunities as possible that um, we're pretty far along. You know, we, we did an actual an audit, uh, an assessment of, of how far along we are with an out, outside firm. And they felt like we were further along than, than most companies that are staged. And that's because we have put so much effort into being intentional about uh, about the decisions we make at this stage and, and, and future stages. And we've put the work in. It's not just, we will do this at some point. Our team has really put the work in. And of course, you know, with a team of, you know, a handful of engineers at the beginning, it's really difficult to not build features. We did that at the beginning. We built a lot of features. We did enough to basically get customers in the door. And then we started chipping away at scalability. Um, and eventually now we're at a stage where we're, we're going to kind of go back to bouncing for features again. And, and it's, you kind of go back and forth to a certain extent to a level that you think is responsible. And I'll give you an example. You know, when we first started, we were on, uh, you know, we were put, putting code out in Flynn uh, instead of Kubernetes. Kubernetes is just kind of getting started. We didn't transfer over to Kubernetes until literally a few weeks ago. And that process took a lot of time to get us to Kubernetes. But it was absolutely worth it because it was the only way we were really going to be able to scale. So we had to chip this away over time. And I feel like we're in a pretty good position now. You're never done with it. But, you know, I feel more comfortable at this point. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? 
I, you know, look, I, I, I'm obviously most proud of our team. Uh, and when I think about the accomplishments that our team has made, I would say, you know, we, we went into an industry that is very difficult to innovate in. And we tackled a problem that, as you can see even today, is a very difficult problem to solve when it comes to aspects of police reform, you know, helping make agencies more transparent, more accountable, and, and, and kind of changing the culture within these agencies um, in, a, in a way that benefits them and benefits their community members that they serve. And, and I would say looking at that and then getting a sense of the scale that we've achieved already, uh, you know, we're in almost a dozen different states in the United States, we're in Canada, we're in multiple major cities, we're geographically agnostic when it comes to, to at least the continent at this point. I mean, we're on the West Coast, the, in the South, in the Northeast, the Midwest, uh, Florida, I mean, I guess that's kind of the South, <laughs> that's the South, but we're, we're all over the place. And, and what we've brought to policing, I think, has a lot of momentum. And I feel like that part, that first part where you where you get the, that, you go from zero to something meaningful, you hit profitability like we did, and you, you get to where you need to go to where you feel like, okay, you have enough momentum that you need to clear the obstacles out of your way and keep the momentum going. And that's the part of your business that that really goes from, you know, from zero to one, one to 10, that 10 to a thousand, a thousand to a million, that is the part that we're now starting to tackle. And to get there is something I think is, is you know, worth being proud of. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Uh, you know, I mentioned a little bit already about the uh, about how it, you know we ended up pivoting in the beginning uh, and, and moving in a different direction. And what else? I'll isolate this mistakes that I made, um, you know, personally and, and things that I've I've learned from as a as a CEO at this stage and and hopefully future stages. I, when I was starting, you know to kind of form this company in my head, obviously I had a lot of ideas for what it's supposed to be. I never kind of built a company of this size before. Um, and, you know, the, the type of leader I had to be in previous organizations was very much a, a single stage type of leader. And as the company grew, I didn't evolve fast enough, I think, as a CEO. I didn't trust my team enough. I was still micromanaging more than I really should. Um, and over time, that became difficult and you know more and more difficult for the team and for me and for the company to succeed because I couldn't be in all the places that I needed to be and I you know I, I couldn't you know just be in everybody's brains at all times. It just doesn't make sense. You might need to do that in the beginning when you got a couple people and you got to you know be the, the captain of the ship. Eventually, you have to you know really distribute that leadership and be build more of a decentralized organization in that sense, or at the very least start delegating and and hiring the right people and trusting them to do what you need them to do. And, and managing them from there. And it took me longer than it should have to get there. It took my teams, you know, my, the leadership uh, uh, members of my team to sit down and tell me how they felt about this for me to snap out of it. Um, and I'm fortunate they did, because if they didn't, I don't think the company would be where it is today. Uh, I, you know, I don't think we would have gotten this far. And this is my, this is, I guess, my plea to all the other, you know, CEOs out there that might be doing this at this scale for the first time. You gotta evolve as a leader. You have to understand your organization is going to continuously change and the requirements of what you need to be a CEO can change not only year by year, month by month, but day by day. And that is going to be where you need to be the glue that that company needs at that time. And if you don't see that coming, it might be too late for you to make that change and you don't have to be in that position. Well, tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team. You know, I, I explain this to uh, to investors and, and other folks that we have kind of an XYZ growth mentality. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is on the X plane of this graph, we're trying to get our product obviously in the hands of as many agencies as we can. We're trying to ensure that as many agencies, uh, you know, that every essentially every public safety agency, at least starting in the United States and, and Canada, has the ability to provide this type of customer service to the community members and has the ability to get this type of feedback in, at scale from their community members so they can constantly optimize, identify liabilities, promote positive actors, do what they need to do uh, to, to be the best agency they can. That's the X graph is we want to get that in the hands of everybody. The Y graph is we want to go into these public safety agencies. We want to continuously build more and more value. We want to ensure that they can do more with the data they're, they're, they're getting from the community members. We want to ensure that they're, they're you know, that they can communicate and, and serve better. We want to build the features they need uh, and potentially the products they need to to get that uh, that value. Then I would say the Z is a little interesting, and this is interesting for us because you know this is one of the benefits of GovTech. Um, on the Z side, with the police departments, the sheriff's departments, they're technically you know the customers we're serving, but. We're actually selling directly to the cities and the counties, and we get constantly we, we get requests from city managers and mayors and other members, fire chiefs, etc., of, of those city organizations, asking us to basically provide them with similar software for their organizations because the, the you know police department's not the only department in that city that's interacting with the community members in a way that they would be interacting with customers. The fire department has customers. The permits department has customers. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the public works has customers. And to be able to provide this type of customer service to these other organizations, that is the Z growth. That's where we go from, from potentially San Antonio Police Department to San Antonio Fire Department to San Antonio Public Works. And that, that's where we want to get to because we eventually also want to be the customer service company for all of government. Well, let's switch to you, Rahul. Uh, who influences the way that you work? Maybe a CEO, uh, architect, a person, re really any person. Tell me someone you look up to and why. You know, I look up to a variety of people, um, but it's all for different reasons. I, it, it's, it's tough to pick one person. I would say the people that influence the way I work the most are obviously my team. What, what, what are my team's needs and who do I need to be for that my team today versus tomorrow? versus next week. Uh, you know, that's something I feel like I don't even personally do a good enough job doing on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis. But I would say that my team is the one that influences, uh, you know, those are the people that influence the way I work the most. Um, when it comes to, you know, mentors and, and who I look up to, there are a variety of people. I would say one person that really helped shape me, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. His name was Bill Ryan. Um, he was uh, a CEO of a company that, that basically brought um, GPS to police cars through software, um, and and not just police cars, but like ambulances, fire departments, etc. That was his start, um, and you know he was a he was a fast talking New Yorker that I met through TechStars. He was there since the company just barely started, and I remembered he was he would not mince words. His feedback was direct, honest, brutal at times, and I loved him for it. Um, you know, eventually had him join the board of directors. Unfortunately, he was a first responder, uh, uh, basically on 9/11, and he passed away. Uh, now a couple of years ago from complications due to lung cancer that he got from, 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 you know, responding on 9-11. Uh, and he, he made a big impact on me and the other members of leadership of the company. And we'll never, you know, forget him for that. Well, we talked about a mistake, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'd have to isolate that question into two different parts because 
my immediate answer is an answer that everybody would have on every decision they've ever made in their life, which is I now have the benefit of information I didn't have previously. Uh, so the decisions I would have made and how to spend money, obviously we wouldn't have had to pivot. We'd have gone directly to where we're going today. Uh, there are some decisions I would have made when it came to tech debt, like we talked about. Uh, when it came to how to approach sales, who to hire and when. Sometimes we hired people too late. Sometimes we hired people too early. Um, you know, decisions on 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 you know fundraising, investors, um, how to pitch, who to take money from. I mean, I love all my investors. I don't regret taking money from any of them. But um, you know, these are the types of things I think we would have done differently. But that's because we have that information now. I think holistically, when it comes to starting a company overall, um, there are certainly things that I would do differently uh, with, with now understanding how to get to where we got to today and and potentially where we're trying to get to. There are things we did right, you know, understanding the problem. I always talk about, you know, fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with the solution because when you fall in love with the solution, you, you get tunnel vision. You have to keep, you know, that, that falling in love with the problem allow you to keep pivoting, making the right decisions, not getting emotionally involved, remaining intellectually honest, etc. But more importantly, there, there were aspects, I think, of starting this business that would have gotten us to where we wanted to get to faster. Just again, it's, it's that lean startup approach that I talked about where you pick that that cl- that cleaner one feature item and you you go out and actually try and find out who all the, co- the one thing it's free is calling as many customers as you possibly can trying to get a sense of which of these customers are going to help you build your product you, you you'll otherwise you'll waste so much time on customers who you may never sell to that don't adopt things early those are not the people you want to talk to in the beginning the people you want to talk to are, are like the chief executives that are hungry for innovation and are risk takers and are willing to take risks on, on things like this i mean finding customers like that and trying to build a product piece by piece with the right people like we had with grover beach in tucson is so vitally important we got very lucky with that Outside of that, it's about assembling the right people, your team. I got fortunate with my team. In the beginning, you need a technical co-founder that's going to roll up their sleeves and and code and actually build something um, and, and put that together. And we had that. Uh, you're going to need people on the sales side that are scrappy, that will do anything for a sale, that, that aren't like, you know, just coming from a big company where they're, they're going to get leads and that's how they do things. No, you need people that are just hungry and are going to hustle and go do it that way. You, it's just about the right people that you hire on that team. And, and, and the, the way you make that product and grow the company in that sense, those are, those are like your fundamental principles, I think, will help you build any company successfully. Well, Raul, last question. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur that's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Assuming that this person is, you know, they're not like, I don't really care about this. I just want money. If they're if they're tr- a true entrepreneur, they're trying to solve a problem and the money comes with solving that problem. And in that sense, I would say, like what I just said, fall in love with this problem. Keep your eyes focused on this particular problem. Do whatever you have to do when it comes to understanding this problem, solving this problem, but don't fall in love with any of the solutions. Don't fall in love with any of the people that are going to are going to sell you the snake oil you know, there's nothing else is as important as this problem is important. And if you have that problem, solving that problem as your guiding light, then you'll get through everything else. You'll survive the emotional roller coasters, the ups and downs. You'll be able to solve the problems you need to do to get to that bigger problem that you're trying to solve. You'll go piece by piece. You'll stay motivated for, you know, I'm, I'm six years into this. You'll stay motivated for, for a longer period of time. You have to really want to solve this problem. You got to fall in love with that. And that that's the fuel you'll need to get to where you need to go. 
That's fantastic advice. Well, Rahul, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Spider Tech. You got to know anytime. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.